Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Hey church, how we doing? Hey, I need you to high-five the person next to you and just remind them that God is good. I want to hear a lot of God is goods. A lot of them. Now, I don't want you to say, so good to see you. No one cares. It's God is good. That's where we're going with this. Of course we care. Of course we do. Hey, if you are here for the very first time, my name is Chad. I'm the lead pastor here at Calvary. So good to have you in the house today. If you're tuning in online, in your car, in your pajamas, wherever you are, I'm so glad that you're tuning in as well. I had a conversation earlier this week about somebody who was tuning in online, and they said, you know, I was telling them about what was going on in the service, and they said, it's just not the same at home. And I totally agree. It's not the same as being in the room. But we're thankful that, that you're tuning in no matter where you are, although being in the room is special. Amen? Amen. Being in the room is, is a valuable thing, sitting under the teaching of God's Word with God's people, singing His praises. Um, is a powerful thing. Hey, this is week two in a series. I'll catch you up really quickly as to where we were last week. We started talking about this idea of forgiveness, but we didn't approach it head on. We're actually looking at a phenomenal story in the New Testament, and it is through the, the life of really three individuals of, uh, that were mentioned in this tiny little postcard of writing called Philemon. And if you go to the right in your Bible, you can go there now. We're going to read the scripture before I start and talk about other things. But Philemon is one of the men who are being referenced here. And obviously, he's the actual recipient of the letter. He's the direct recipient. But also, there's another name that's integral to the story. And that's the name of, uh, the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was the one who actually wrote the postcard-sized uh, letter to Philemon. But he was writing about this gentleman by the name of Onesimus. It's an easy name to say. Say it with me, would you? Onesimus. You guys are scholars. This is awesome. I'm impressed. So, yeah, that, it's these three names and just seeing the, the reality of forgiveness and reconciliation just unfold in the storyline of these three names. And what we're going to see, and what, if you were here last week, what you heard was Philemon was someone who was... Uh, who managed slaves, and he had a slave by the name of, of Onesimus. And if you're unsettled by the fact that somebody had a slave, period, like I am, conversation I had this week, like, okay, tell me about this whole idea of slavery in that context. I want you to know some things. Slavery in that context was not the same as the type of slavery that happened in the United States. Slavery in that context wasn't man-stealing. There wasn't, there wasn't a matter of people being put on board a ship in Africa and then coming over to the United States and then divvying them out to do hard labor. Slavery in their day was a debt slavery. And God thought so much of this idea of debt slavery. I'm not going to go into it, but you can write down this source and look at it later if you're curious. In Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15, what you would see in that passage in Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15 is how God had allowance for this idea of debt slavery because the type of people who would be enslaved in this way, it was because they had debts that they couldn't pay. So there were lawyers, doctors, politicians, anyone who could actually be enslaved. And God was so good that the way that he brought about social reform in that day was, was very interesting. 
after six years of, if you had still had debt for six years, if you weren't able to pay that debt off on year seven, the debt was canceled and you could go back home. That's the way it worked. Like the debt was just canceled because God was making allowance, not just to bring about social reform. God was bringing about spiritual reform that matched with that social reform. So he knew that he was working, that God would be working inside people's lives. So that would change the way that, that people looked at other people. Colossians 4.1 also makes mention of this practice in the New Testament. And also Ephesians 6.9 makes mention of this practice. So the primary thing that the Bible is about is not about bringing social reform primarily. It's about social reform. It's about redemption. It's about God redeeming people who were, who were lost and dead in their sins and allowing them the opportunity to know who God is and to connect with God, to be at peace with God, be at peace with himself and other people as well. So I was also very perplexed by this. Slavery was not about race. It was about economics in that culture. So hopefully that will at least to maybe appease some of your curiosity as to, okay, what, what's going on here? Because you've mentioned this idea of slavery. It's not the same as it was in the United States. So in the passage we talked about last week, we went through verses 1 through 7, and we mentioned these, these particular names. And what's going to be amazing today is there are going to be, if you, have, uh, some, if you have one of these and you're taking notes, you're going to see the nine different ways that the Apostle Paul appeals to Philemon so he can mend an offense with Onesimus. So he gives nine different ways of approaching. So you and I, we have different ways. Maybe we, wouldn't have, a, we have to have a hard conversation. Maybe it's spurring off of something that was talked about last week, and maybe God moved in your heart like something that you need to do. Now we're going to be able to add some meat onto the bone, and the Apostle Paul gives us nine different ways of approaching the person you need to have the conversation with. Who, who's in for that? Say, I am. All right. Philemon 8 is where we're going to start going through verse 16. This is where, or this is the word of God. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, and now he's become useful both to you and to keep uh, useful to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is, a very, he is very dear to me and even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So the nine different appeals, we'll get to those in just a moment. I, I ran across this story that I think really encapsulates this. It's a story from history. And it has to do with what this light bulb... See, I have stuff. You just... I hide stuff. You don't even know. I've got stuff. I've got that just in case I need to dab or wipe. I don't know. I've, I'm good. I, I think that's all I have today. But this is known as an Edison bulb. It's a particular type of bulb. Of course, Thomas Edison was a great inventor and invented light bulbs. And 
This is a modern version of the Edison Bowl, but I heard a story about Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison was developing this particular light bulb, and he was just trying to make one prototype for this light bulb. And it wasn't just him. It was a whole team of people. And, and his, his team that was developing the light bulb, they actually had one, one light bulb that they had developed, and it was finished, and they, or it was nearly finished. And this Thomas Edison, he gave this light bulb to this little boy who was there, a young man who was helping, and he was supposed to go up the steps and then go put the finishing touches on the bull, but that was just part of the process. Well, as that, that young man got to the top of the steps, he was so, I guess, nervous with excitement that they finally made a light bulb that he actually dropped the light bulb and it busted it into a bunch of different pieces. Again, it's the prototype. One light bulb. My thought was, how would I respond in that? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to talk about that publicly. Maybe not so well. Thomas Edison, obviously knowing what had happened in the disaster, he sent his team back to work. It took another 24 hours for them to develop a prototype like the other one. And what would a man do? What would a woman do in that situation? After they made the new prototype, they were looking for an individual to carry that light bulb up to put the finishing touches on it, to climb those steps again and put the finishing touches. And Thomas Edison reached out to the same young man who dropped the bulb, and he handed him the bulb so that he could do again what he attempted to do the day before. Because there was something about what Thomas Edison knew in that moment. It wasn't just about the light bulb. It was about what was happening in restoring the individual who had made the mistake. He was willing to give him a second chance. We serve a God of the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chance, don't we? The infinite amount of chances. And what I think what we see in that storyline, and really the big idea that we will see from the passage is this. The way you see people determines how you treat people. The way, the way you see people determines how you treat people. What the Apostle Paul is, is trying to get across to Philemon is, I want you to see Onesimus in a different light. I don't want you to see Onesimus as an individual who has failed you, and I don't want you to see him just as a runaway slave. Instead, I want you to change the way that you see him. I want you to see him as a brother. Because he knew that the way that you would see him would be the way that would ultimately be the way that he was to be treated. The same way that Thomas Edison did with that light bulb and restoring that young man and giving him a second chance because it wasn't about the light bulb. Amen? It, it's about people. And Thomas Edison, in that story that lives through history, he knew that the way that you see people determines how you treat people. And he saw that young boy not as a mess up, but he saw him as, as, as a man who needed to be restored. Oh, church, if we would actually embrace this to be true in our own lives, if we would embrace this, if we would really, really embrace this, not as just some little pithy phrase that's on the screen and just filling blanks on a card, but if we would truly embrace this truth into our life, into our life, our not only would our lives improve, but also the lives that we continually touch around us. And not just the, the lives within this body that's meeting here today or, or can't be with us because they're at home or online somewhere, but the people that we interact with that God has given us influence all around this city and the county that we live in or maybe the county that you live in and all around your workplace. 
If we would actually embrace this truth, I believe that we would see an expansion of the kingdom of God. That when we get it right, and the world expects us to get it right, people would be changed by our testimony. I believe it, and I know it. Adding to, to this, the way you see people determines how you treat people. How you see the world affects how you show up in the world. You see, how you see the world, if we see the world through the lens of we have this, these great commandments that we're to be living out, loving God with, with all of our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and that's all over the scriptures, that, that that's what we're supposed to be doing. And also, if we would go in second to, but not too far down the rung from loving God, if we would actually love our neighbors as ourselves, we too would see some change that would happen in our world. Because how you see people also affects how you show up in the world, but it also affects how you love people. It affects how you love people. The second appeal that we're going to see today is, is appeal of love. Let's get into the first one, though. Right at the beginning of this passage, the first appeal, the first of nine, the Apostle Paul uses in verse 8. He says, therefore, although in Christ I could, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, He's saying, although I could be bold and I could order you to do that, why could he do that? Because he had apostolic authority, that's why. That's the first appeal that he, could, that he does choose to use. He says, I could have been bold and I could have made you do this. I have the authority under God to do this. He had a spiritual authority that he was, he had a, a special anointing from God, knowing that he would be an apostle and that he would bring uh, he was so well respected as being a man of God and so much influence and impact. He says, I could have been bold to make you do that, but he didn't do that. The second thing that we'll see here, we're going to spend more time on this, this appeal because this is more common in the scripture even than, than the first part. Verse 9. He says in verse 9, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. This is the highest appeal that he could actually use. He says, I, I, I make this appeal on the basis of love, on the shared love that, that we have in Christ, that Christ has for us, that we, we have for one another, and that now Onesimus, although I know that he did something wrong, although it's the same love that we share because he confessed Christ, he gave his life to Jesus, he says, so on the basis of love, now he also makes this appeal. What Paul is hoping that Philemon would do is that he would be motivated by love and not duty. He's trying to, to help him and remind him that, that it's the love of Christ that compels us. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul also wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was, was raised again. So he says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that, that one died for all, that Jesus died for all, and now we are, we are dying to our selfishness. That we no longer live as selfish robots in the world and occasionally bump into other people and, have the, and just have allowance and just be okay because somebody bumped into us. Instead, he says, now we live on the basis of love. We're not just spiritual robots that live independent of one another. We all live and we're compelled by the same love if you're in Christ. 
For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that, once died for, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and was raised again. Simply put, God's love changes us. Church, hear me when I say this. Stop waiting for God's love to change someone else. Allow God's love to first change you. If you invite the Holy Spirit into your life and invite Him to examine you in the way that you love other people, that will give you the opportunity to also love people and to have right relationship with God and right relationship with yourself. But if we're simply waiting around for somebody else to get their life right, we're actually wrong. We first should invite the Holy Spirit of God to examine our life, to make sure that we are in fellowship with God, confessing our sin as the Holy Spirit reveals those to us. Knowing as the Word of God, He says that God is he's, he's just and He's faithful, and He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Knowing that the Word of God is true and that God's love compels us, not to wait for him to do to, for somebody else, but inviting him to do it first in us. God's love allows us to be tolerant of other people. The world for the last, th- I don't know, several years, three to five years, has thrown up this world tolerance. I define worldly tolerance as this. Worldly tolerance says there are no rules, so don't judge others choices or opinions. It's not necessary to hold people accountable. This is of those who are not in Christ. This should be our expectation of the world acting like the world. And I'm not hating on those who aren't Christians. I'm just wanting us to have the right expectation when when we engage other people who don't call themselves Christians. Don't be surprised if they don't act like Christians. Worldly tolerance says there are no rules, so don't judge others. Choices or opinions. In other words, everybody's, everybody's opinion is just as valid. Everybody's truth, quote-unquote, truth, small t, not capital T, is true. So it's not necessary to hold people accountable. No wonder we see that people all around us, and even some people in the church, are very fickle, divisive, unbiblical, angry, and even immoral. Biblical tolerance is this. And the way that I define it, I will share God's truth with others in gentleness and respect. Because the love of Christ, I will love them if they agree or disagree. Do you see the difference between worldly tolerance and biblical tolerance? Biblical tolerance is the standard for every Christian for all time. I don't hold you, if you're in Christ, I don't hold you to the standard of worldly tolerance that anything goes. But I hold you, and you should hold me accountable to biblical tolerance, that I will share God's truth with others, with you and with me, in gentleness and respect. And even if we disagree, I will love you anyway. Tolerance is actually more of a Christian idea than it's a world's idea anyway. The idea has been fleshed out also in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. This will be on the screen. 
Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. The standard of your life, the standard of your, your ethics, values, and morals if you're in Christ, has been impacted by the Word of God, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So the standard is clearly different than what we would expect to see in the rest of the world. Biblical tolerance also is this. It's based on the belief that everyone deserves our compassion. That everyone deserves our compassion. So why do we advocate for things like missions for Taylorville? Why do we advocate for things that actually make our city better? Why, why is part of our mission statement to be a church for the city? Why is that true? Because we believe that everybody is worthy of our compassion. Because God saw fit that we were worthy of his compassion. So we're simply being a vessel of the compassion that he's given to us, and we are being compassionate with others because he's been so compassionate to us. This is also why we we bring meals to grieving families. This is also why we celebrate new life. And if a mother gives birth to a child and we, we wash her with, with food so she doesn't have to take care of, food, of the food and she can just care for the child and, and, and the, the dad can care for the child and just love on that baby and just develop as a, as a family, we just say, no, you know what, we'll take care of the food for the next week or two. We'll try and not give you too much, but I can't make any guarantees. We have a lot of good cooks. But these are reasons why. It's because we're trying to be compassionate. It isn't a matter if they can afford to buy their own food. It's a matter of the compassion that God has given to us. So we're compassionate because he's been compassionate to us. And if we're to be, just to be brutally honest, he was compassionate to us and when we didn't deserve it at all. So for us, we're not trying to create a standard here of like, who deserves our compassion? They do. Who's they? Everyone. This also is why I'm, I have a deep concern for a ministry that's not even connected to this ministry, was Celebrate Recovery with other brothers and sisters across town they support. Why? Why is it that we should advocate? And even when somebody from another church is, is doing something well for our community, why is it that we should pursue and maybe join that church to do other good works in the city? Why? It's because Christ's love compels us and because it is compassionate to do so. And it doesn't mean that we, that we have to have the market share of every ministry in our city. That would be just so foolish. Instead, if we see other ministries that are actually doing things well in our city, we should clap and support and do whatever we can to help them do what it is that God's already doing with them. Not to take their joy and to take their service away from them because we think we can do it better. Instead, we should add to other ministries why? Because Christ's love compels us and because God was so compassionate with us in dealing with us, so his love and his compassion compels us to be compassionate and loving to other people. So many examples I could give of this. Here's another example. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion 
and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all, in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. It's so clear, isn't it? Biblical tolerance, it, it, it does have boundaries, though. It does. It does have boundaries. We're not to excuse sin or deceit or embrace ungodly behaviors. It does have boundaries. Because it doesn't mean anything goes. It means if it violates God's law or his laws of love for him and love for others and true love for ourselves, then we shouldn't take part in it. We should do what we can to eradicate it in our own lives and also in the lives of other brothers and sisters around us. But when these principles, the principle of biblical tolerance is correctly applied, it brings the peace of God not only to the individual, not only to the relationship, but also to the body of which that spirit dwells. And this is what I'm after. I'm going hard after this. I want you to see this is all over the scriptures, Colossians 3, 13 through 15. This is what the word of God says here. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Somebody need to hear that. I'm going to say it again. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all in perfect harmony. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. How is it that this love motivates us to do right by God and others? This is the way that I've come to understand it. This is not the word of God, but this way that I've come to understand it. Jesus Christ enlarges the heart when he occupies it. Jesus Christ enlarges the heart when he occupies it. Our ability to love expands when he occupies it. Our ability to forgive expands when, when we too have experienced the forgiveness of God. Our ability to, to comfort and to be compassionate with people, it expands because the, because the Spirit of God and Jesus working in us, when he occupies the heart, he enlarges our heart with, with a greater ability to love. And it is a love that is, is, greater than, is greater than what we ourselves can control or we ourselves can, can, can muster within our own self. Because it's Christ's love that compels us to be compassionate. As our heart enlarges, he enlarges our heart. You see, God's love motivates us to serve him instead of our emotions. Because our emotions will fool us because our emotions will first tell us that person is probably not worthy of love to begin with. So it's allowing God's love to motivate us, yielding to the Spirit of God instead of our emotions because more than likely our emotions are going to lag behind where the Spirit of God wants to take us. If we lead with our emotions, our life is going to be erratic and our relationships are going to be erratic as well. But we allow God's love to take us first. A great example of this happened with one of the best missionaries of all time. Hudson Taylor was an epic missionary to the people in India. Hudson Taylor was 
at the front or the bow of this, this boat, and there was a mass of people wanting to travel. So there was just a crowd of people looking to get on the boat, and more than likely, there was more people who were waiting to get on the boat than were actually going to be able to fit. So Hudson Taylor, he's standing there, this, and this man comes up, and he's got a stick, and this man takes and just whacks Hudson Taylor, this great missionary. Man of God, whacks him with this stick and just whacks him until Hudson Taylor falls to the ground. Obviously, that's kind of a shocking thing, and Hudson Taylor had to gain his composure, and he stands up, and he turns and looks at the man, and he says, he's like, sir, if you will control yourself, I will let you get onto my boat. Then the man gets onto the boat, and as the story goes, as they got onto the river and they went up doing whatever they were doing through that time, that man gave his life to Jesus. Because that's compelling, isn't it? To see someone forgive somebody after they know they defended them, and instead of harboring an offense against them or harboring bitterness and unforgiveness, instead of doing that, to simply double down and say, you know what, I want to give you what's going to change your life, and I want to give you what's been given to me, just the gift of salvation. And Hudson Taylor had to go beyond this offense and to forgive him. Back to our passage. I'm going to fly through a lot of these. I I know I was going to spend more time on that one. That's the common theme throughout all of the Bible I had to. So another thing that we see, number three here, actually, of the appeals that the Apostle Paul uses, again, is in verse 9, at the latter part of verse 9. It says, Yet I appeal to you on the basis of love, I then, as Paul, an old man. Now he's appealing him to him with the respect for Paul's age. In our culture, unfortunately, age is looked down upon. Culturally, what's happening, and this is not just right now, this has happened for a long time. Our culture tends to push away people who are older because the errant thought is that the older they get, the less they can contribute to society. That is just simply not true. The Word of God tells us this in Job 12, 12, wisdom belongs to the aged and understanding to the old. Notice it doesn't say wisdom belongs to the teenager and understanding to the influencer. Notice it doesn't say that. Wisdom belongs to the aged and understanding to the old. That culture got it right more so than ours does. So Paul makes this appeal on the basis of his age. He's like, I'm I'm an older man. I've seen some things. I've been some places. So he makes appeal in that regard. The fourth appeal he makes is this, to honor Paul's sufferings. The latter part of verse 9 again, he says, I then as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ. So he makes this appeal in honoring Paul's sufferings. I believe it's, it's a way for Paul sending this, this postcard to bring reconciliation between these two brothers in the church that would meet 
in Philemon's home. I believe this is his way of saying, hey, remember that I'm in chains and I'm in the middle of this suffering right now and, and I would be there and tell you face to face and I would make this reconciliation happen if I could, but I'm not. But know the reason why I'm not there is because I'm in the, in the middle of suffering for the same gospel that we're actually supposed to be living for. The fifth appeal is this. On the basis of Paul's spiritual fatherhood of Onesimus. Verse 10. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. He's talking about spiritual fatherhood here. I believe one of the biggest questions that is going to be revealed in the next five years in the life of our church, and hear me clearly on this because this is something you've never heard me say and you probably never heard a preacher say. I believe one of the things that's going to define us over the next five, ten years within the life of this church is will these spiritual fathers and mothers disciple these young believers? Will the spiritual fathers and mothers who've been in Christ for the last 20 years use that wisdom and that experience and that knowledge that God has given you, and will you distill that and pass that on to someone else? That actually fits right into this, into what we try to do strategically here at the church. The last part of our strategy, it's belong, become, beyond, and begin. But the question, not just some just ambiguous question about spiritual mothers and fathers, but the question that I will square up to you as a man of God, to another man or woman of God is this. Will you be a spiritual mother and father for somebody who is less spiritually mature than you? We'll know the truth about that in the next five, maybe three, maybe the next ten years. But my hope is that you would take that personal and that you would take that as a challenge, not just from your pastor, but from God. The next appeals comes from verses 11 and 12 as well. Formerly, he was useless to you and now has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. He's appealing on the basis of Onesimus' new character. His new character. Notice he says, formerly, he was useless to you. He was, he was just somebody who worked for you. But now he's become useful both to you and to me. Notice before he had no use within the kingdom of God, but now he has great usefulness in the kingdom of God. He's trying to, to hone in on Onesimus' new character. In other words, he's asking the question, Philemon, I appeal to you, will you give him a second chance? Will you allow him to come back into your life and back into your home and back into the church that meets in your home? Will you embrace him as a brother? Will you go past your differences and will you honor the new character that the Holy Spirit of God is doing in him? Will you acknowledge that people can change? Will you celebrate that change? Will you embrace that everyone is in a sense 
and then a state of change too. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says this, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, and you may also, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Hold that verse on the screen if you would. The word restore there is the same word that would be derived from the fisherman, not with a net like this, but like a casting net, not a dip net, but the principle still applies. Fishermen, in their day, they would have to fix their nets and make sure that the nets were fixed the night before so they could go out early in the morning to go fishing. There was no time in the morning. They had to get on the water to be there when the fish were biting or at least to be able to be where they were so they could get some fish. But the idea of restoring is this, that the nets had to be repaired before they became useful. So let's read this scripture again. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. I'll add some of my words to this. You should understand that for any of us to be useful, we, we first had to be restored by God. Any of us to, to have any value that we're adding into the world, it's first that God had to mend us, to mend the nets of our lives, the things that make up our lives. The seventh appeal is this. Onesimus' usefulness to Paul. Onesimus' usefulness to Paul. In Greek, Onesimus actually means profitable or helpful. That's more of a, of a name that would be given to a slave because they were helpful and profitable. And actually what the Apostle Paul is doing here is something totally different. Because he's not using the name Onesimus in just some small way. He's using it in a significant way. And he also used the word useful or useless in this way. The word akristos, it means this in the Greek, pertaining to not, serve, not serving any beneficial purpose or useless or, pur- or, or just being worthless. So the word for useless was the word Christos. In useful is a word closely connected with the other one that's pronounced euchristos. It means pertaining to be helpful or beneficial, useful or serviceable. It means that he was actually fulfilling his name. So when Philemon would have read that particular part of the letter, it wouldn't, have just been, it wouldn't have been just some little cool little play on words, like, oh, useful, useless. Instead, he used just the nuance of that Greek language to say that he was not useful at all before. And now when he switched it to go from a Christos to Christos, he says now he is very useful.
The eighth appeal is this. Going right through the passage, drawing this from verse 16, Paul's affection for Onesimus. Notice what he says. Him coming back no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. You can just sense the spiritual connection. You can just sense Paul's affection for both Philemon and Onesimus. And the last thing we see in the passage is Philemon's debt to Paul. He says in two different verses, verse 13, he says, I would have liked to, to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But later he notes, even in verse 19, he says, and not to mention that you owe me your very self. In other words, remember our relationship. He uses these nine appeals not to to twist Philemon's arm or force him into doing anything. But instead, to compel him of the love of God, to be tolerant of the sin that was committed against him, and to be compassionate anyway. Because the way you see people determines how you treat people. It's true of them and it's true of us. You may ask the question, well, how do I do this? I'll give you two, two questions to wrestle with, not just in these moments, but to wrestle with in applying this message. Two questions to pause and ask. When there's a difference, when there's unforgiveness, when there's bitterness, or there's just that uh, against somebody else. And you want to reconcile, but you don't know how. Ask yourself first this question. What does Jesus see in me that I can't? What does Jesus see in me that I can't? What does Jesus see in me that I can't? The second question is this. What does Jesus see in them that I don't? What does Jesus see in them that I don't? You know, the gospel is an amazing thing to me. Changes lives, brings about revival that's happening. You hear bits of revival all around right now. And it's the gospel doing that. It's not just a gifted leader, communicator, somebody singing songs. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that transforms lives. It's the gospel that restores. It's the gospel that sees us as as being not really all that useful in the world. To use the analogy of a net, we were the equivalent to a net with a great big hole in it. And if you've ever been fishing and used one of these, you know where the fish goes every single time if there's a hole in it. It goes right through the hole. That's a picture of us. Because every one of us, we can all identify with this. We were all unusable. 
we were all needing to be restored. We were all needing the compassion and the compassion of God and the love of God. But as you stand, I want to tell you some other good news. Not only do you need that, the person you're harboring unforgiveness against needs that as well. And more good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers your first step. He's the God of first, second, third, fourth, fifth chances. So you may have come into this place and you're just, you just consider yourself broken or unusable. God sees you, God knows you, God loves you. God's compassionate towards you. And he wants to change you from the inside out. I'm going to lead you in a prayer that I don't normally do. And I want you to know that there's, there's nothing mysterious or special about the pastor saying words like this out loud. What's special about it is when you pray these words in true belief about what we're going to talk about and believing who Jesus is, knowing where you stand in your sins and the way to be cleansed of your sins. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to offer some words and allow you and just lead you through a prayer of maybe where you need to be today. So would you pray with me? You can just pray within yourselves. You don't need to pray this out loud. Unless, of course, you'd like to. Say, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. My life needs restored. And I know that my sin is keeping me from you. Jesus, I believe the gospel is true. I believe that you died on the cross for sinners just like me because you love. So Jesus, I'm turning away from my old life. I'm repenting of my sins. I'm coming to you. I'm asking you to be my Lord and my master and my savior. Please come into my heart. Change me from the inside out. Cleanse me, God. Restore me, God. Let me be at peace with you, God. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time and you were praying that to God, not to me, not to the person next to you, not praying to be heard by someone other than God, in accordance with the word of God, you just got saved. And if you just got saved, we would love to celebrate the decision that you just made. So as we have this, this time of prayer ministry, continuing the service, I would just ask that you'd be so bold and courageous just to come forward to acknowledge publicly, say, I got saved today.
For you, maybe there was some people you'd say, you know what, I, I believe I was already saved and, and yet I feel different praying that prayer. I believe I was already saved, but I feel different because I mean, maybe I just, I believed it today for the first time. We'd love to celebrate with that, that momentous thing that happened in you. And of course, if there's just something you'd like to have people pray for, you'd love to be prayed over, a health crisis, a relational crisis, or you just want to praise God together, now's the time for all of those things. We're not going to wait long, but we'll wait just long enough.